following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, we, if you're just jumping in with us, we, we've been going through the book of Ephesians uh, for a number of months now. We, we tend to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We kind of, um, we don't really pick and choose topically, not very often. We, the majority of our time, we just sit down in a book of Bible and let the, let, let the word of God sort of dictate what we need to hear in this moment. And Lord, he's got a, he's a very timely. And so there's a lot of stuff as we've been going through the book of Ephesians that have been very, very relevant to this this cultural moment, very relevant to how a lot of people are, are experiencing life right now on sort of a, a personal level, and, and we just want to keep chipping away at that. And the first half of the book of Ephesians really has this one message. Chapters 1 through 3 has this one message to communicate to us that in the gospel, and it has a bunch of ways of, of expressing this, um, but it says, in the gospel, God is adopting us into his family. That in sin, we were orphans of wrath, we were far from God, and now God has moved toward us through Christ and brought us into his family, and he has assembled a global and diverse family for himself. A family that that spans throughout all time and all space, every culture, every ethnicity, every sort of different variant of life, the blue collar, the white collar, all kinds of people coming together as God's family. And one of the ways that Paul expresses this is when he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. See, in, in the first century, as the apostle Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, there was perhaps no greater divide among people than the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and Paul says, listen, in the gospel, God has taken the two men 
and he has torn down every dividing wall of hostility and has brought them together as one. There in the gospel is a new humanity, a new family. And as we move out of chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians, we move into chapters 4, 5, and 6, which basically the, the main intent of these, chunk, these, these big chunks of Scripture, uh, the Apostle Paul starts explaining or laying out the house rules, as I've called them last week, of how we function in God's household. That if we are, in fact, members of the household of God, this is how we ought to conduct ourselves. This is how we relate to one another in this relational ecosystem of grace that is God's church. And today, we're kind of continuing the discussion along the lines of God's house rules. We'll tack up a couple of extra house rules that the Apostle Paul lays out, specifically here in verses 30 through uh, verse 2 in chapter 5. But really what I want to do today is focus on the motive. Because I think that's, that's really the heart of what Paul's getting after after you move to the end of this passage that Miss Carrie read for us today into the end of chapter 4, into chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is focusing on the motive. Why, you know, if God lays out these rules, if the Apostle Paul's laying out these rules, why do we abide by them? Why, why do we live this way? What compels us to live in the way that, that the Apostle Paul it is laying out before us based upon the life and the ministry of Jesus. Why? Right? What's the motive for doing this? If you don't understand the why of why Paul is, is asking us to conduct our lives in a certain kind of way, Christianity is likely to seem stuffy to you. It's likely to seem like a bunch of rules. Do this, don't do that, right? Here's the standard. You've got to meet the standard. So it feels stiff. It might feel obligatory. And what we'll come to, 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 you know, the conclusion that we come to is that Christianity is all about checking a bunch of boxes, right? That, that we're setting out to be the good boys and the good girls. Follow the rules, right, so it'll go well for you. But that is a, a reductionistic way, in fact, in a lot of ways, incorrect way to look at the, the house rules that the Apostle Paul lays out. Because God's aim in giving us these house rules isn't to create a bunch of heartless rule followers, people who are kind of like robotic of do this, don't do that, don't blah, blah, blah. You know, that's not God's aim. God is, is desiring to, through his house rules, through the gospel, is to, to, to present a life that is lived fully alive to God a life that is invigorated, a life that is driven and enlivened. And the only way that, the, that this can happen, religion can't do that. Religion can't enliven us to follow the rules. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can invigorate us in the way that the Apostle Paul is telling us to order and to conduct our lives. Now, the house rules that have been laid out in verses 25 through 29 um, which we talked about last week, deal mostly with certain kinds of behavior. If you were with us last week, you'll remember um, what, what the Apostle Paul, let me just recap, because if you weren't with us, uh, the Apostle Paul sort of says he prohibits certain kinds of activities, certain kinds of, of conduct. He says, listen, put off falsehood. You don't need to lie. Let, let's not lie anymore. He says, it, the thieves... Listen, you don't have to steal anymore. 
He says he prohibits corrupt talk, taking, taking our words and weaponizing them to, to, to um, destroy and to undercut people. Paul prohibits this kind of conduct. And in verse 31, he tacks on a couple other things like clamor, which is basically um, an argumentative posture, which there's no shortage of that in our culture right now. The sort of who, the loudest voice in the room wins. That, that's, the, that's, the, um, that's the drive of clamor. Talks about slander, put put off or put away slander, right? Speaking ill of people behind their backs in a way that is not true, not accurate, right? So Paul prohibits these things, and at the same time, he commands a more noble action. So he says, listen, instead of lying, you should tell the truth. Instead of stealing, you should work an honest job with your hands and take whatever revenue you have earned and be generous to bless others with that. He says, listen, put away the corrupting talk, the slander, the clamor, the way that you're backbiting people, and we speak now to build up as is fitting, right? What is true and what is fitting. So Paul said, like, put this away. Instead, do this. There's a, there's a new kind of way of, of being in this world. But what happens here as you focus on these external things, right, this sort of conduct, this behavior, there's a shift that happens into verse 31. Let me see if you can pick up on it. He says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Do you see what's happening? The Apostle Paul is making a shift from the external behaviors, the external conduct, to the internal life. He's talking about bitterness. Where does bitterness happen? Right, the heart. You you have a bitter heart. Where does wrath and anger get stored up? Right, well, eventually it's gonna surface. It's It's gonna come to the top but, but it starts in this, it's a seed in the heart, right? Paul talked about that last time. So he says, hey, put away all, not just most of it, but he says, put away all bitterness, right? The stewing, the resentment, the, the jealousy that we can easily get that sort of discontents our heart and sort of has this, I feel it, when I feel this way, it feels like this, this hum, this buzz that, I don't know, I have a pretty sensitive hearing, I'm a musician, and so my ears, I don't know why, I can hear a lot of things that my wife's like, what? I'm like, hey, honey, you hear that buzz? She's like, no, what are you talking about? It's like, well, I hear it. It's, it's everywhere, right? And it just sort of drives me crazy. And I feel that when I feel resentment and bitterness, it's like that annoying buzz that's going on. It sort of, it just agitates you, right? You can't, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you know it's there. The same with malice. Paul says, put away all malice, not just part of it, but all of it. Well, now, what is malice? You know, that's not necessarily a word that we use a lot. In, in sort of like the most frank explanation of it, malice is, is a, a hostility. It's, a, um, it's ill will. It's, it's evil intent. It's something that's going on in the heart that, that could very well surface. But even if it doesn't, it's still there. It's still present Um, at the heart level. Now, what all of these things, the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the malice, the things that Paul says to put off, right, which is language, if you go back to the beginning of chapter four, when he talks about putting off the old self, putting away the old self and put on the new self, see that it's reflecting some of that language. And so Paul says, listen, put these things off because what are they doing to you? They are impairing your heart. 
When these things are going and they have that constant buzz in your life, it's prohibiting your heart to function the way that it was intended to function. Now, as Paul lays out both external, you know, external rules, external house rules, conduct, and the internal things that are going on, what this tells us is obedience to God is not about performance. See, if it, if it was just the external things, if Paul said, hey, just don't do that bad stuff, just stay away from it, right? That you, could, you could fake it till you make it. You could perform your way through. It's like, well, I didn't do those things. Yet, Paul kind of goes underneath the skin and says, let's get to the heart because Jesus isn't interested in mere behavior modification. See, the chief, the chief aim of Jesus isn't to create more moral people, though morality is a part of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is trying to create people who have a reoriented heart, a, a new heart, people who are a, a new creation. And so it's not only this external stuff. Jesus goes down to the heart, which is really important because what Proverbs 4 tells us, and this, this is a thing that runs all throughout Scripture, is that the heart, Proverbs 4 says, the heart is the wellspring of life, that everything flows from the heart. In other words, it's the command center of your life. The heart dictates what you think, what you say, what you do. So Jesus isn't just saying, hey, hey, let's, let's clean up your activity. Let's clean up your conduct. He's trying to get to the root of the problem. He's trying to get to the heart. Because if, if the heart is never addressed, if the root isn't addressed, it's possible to create seemingly healthy fruit. Like from the outside, it looks healthy, but on the inside, it's rotten. It's not good. And Jesus wants, wants us to, to be people who produce good fruit that comes from a pure heart. Now, if you go through the Gospels and watch Jesus interact um, with the Pharisees, who are, who are like the top religious people of the day, Jesus has beef with them, all right? Jesus has a bone to pick. In fact, there's a couple times where Jesus has really sharp words for the most seemingly religious, devout people. He calls them, in, in Matthew 23, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you look good on the outside. It looks like you got it together. But on the inside, man, decay is happening. There's nasty death on the inside. He says, you, you guys are, are the ones who are so concerned with cleaning the outside of the cup, yet you pay no regard to what's going on the inside. Now, what we see among the Pharisees, among the religious people, is that for the most part, they're doing the right things. Like, they're devout. They're, they're praying. They're tithing. Like, they're doing the good things. But what Jesus exposes is that they're doing good things for the wrong reasons. Their, their motive for doing this is off. And in, verse, in chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus exposes what this bad motive is. Why, why the Pharisees, why the religious people kind of jump through the hoops? Why they put forward this image? Well, the reason why they do this, the reason why they do pious things is so that they would be seen by others and be praised. That other people would look at them and say, oh, wow, that guy's really got his life together. He's really, he must be tight with God, right? They're, they've got him on speed dial. 
Their aim is to get the approval of men, not to get the approval of God, not to honor God, not to worship God. Their motives for their good action is twisted. Now, commentators say, when the Apostle Paul uses the word malice, this is probably what he's talking about. It's not just a prohibition of evil intent, right? This hostility, this, this, you know, this angstiness in our soul to do um, wrong to other people. What, what he's actually doing is, is taking, he's adding a dimension to that word and speaking about um, how we are able to pervert good and virtuous action with twisted motives, right? Just like the Pharisees. They do the good things, but for the wrong reasons, That's kind of, you know, the, the multidimensional definition of malice, right? It's it perverted, it's twisted, it's warped, right? I'm doing the good things, but maybe for the wrong reasons. Ties it back to malice in that sense. Now, the Pharisees were good at this, and we can be pretty good at this too. And a lot of times, it's happening real time, and, and we've got no idea that it's going on. And this is what it might look like. For us, in this setting, in this context, it might look like going to church out of duty because it's the right thing to do. Your parents taught you that you go to church because it's Sunday morning and you're supposed to go to church, so you do it, right? So, so you do it. You go to church, which is good. You worship. You gather with the saints, which is great. But you're not doing it out of worship. You're not doing it out of reverence to God. You're not doing it out of devotion to God. You're doing it to make somebody else happy. You're, you're doing it to sort of present an image of I'm a good Christian person. Or another way, within the context of relationships, you say nice things, but you don't mean them. Right? When Paul says, listen, we talk to build each other up, there's also a piece of integrity that he has in mind with that. We're not supposed to be people who give each other lip service, say what they want to hear, detached from truth, or even that our hearts aren't even engaged with what we're trying to say. And so we can go about saying nice things, but have zero authenticity to them. Right, there's a disconnect from our motive to our action. Another way is, is in giving. We might give, which I think that's great. I love givers, not, not just to the church, but to have a generous lifestyle. But, but here's the way that, that your motives can be twisted in that. That while you give, you give in stinginess. You, you give in grumbling. Not, not with a generous heart. Not not in a way that, that actually expresses gratitude and thanksgiving or even, even joyfully, but in a grumbly and angry and sort of resentful kind of way. Another way, and, and I'm guilty, I was convicted of this this week. Our, our missional community did a, a, um, a mission event thing, helping out World Relief next door. There's a bunch of families throughout the Quad Cities, refugee families that just need help doing basic stuff. And so we went to help with, with um, a yard cleanup. And, and so one of the ways I felt conviction this week was I'm here serving, and the whole time that I'm serving, I'm just grumbling in the back of my mind and sort of creating for myself the superiority complex. Oh, this is why I've got, I've got this put together, and so I'm able to help, right? So I'm not taking the posture of a servant, I'm not truly serving out of love for these people. I'm doing it in a way to kind of draw attention to myself, to bolster my self-image. So you take the role of a servant so other people will praise you. So you'll get, so they'll view you in a certain way. You'll be, you be kind, 
Right? This kind of ties with speaking untruthfully. You'll be kind to somebody, but the whole time you, you've got this anger, this bitterness in your heart, right? That just, if it got exposed, it'd be ugly. There, there are all kinds of places where in our lives we can do the right things, but be motivated by the wrong reasons. I just want to ask you right now, maybe those kind of like hit a bell, but where do you sense in your own life, where do you sense a disconnect between your actions and your heart? Or in other words, in, in what places of your life are you doing the right things, but maybe for the wrong motives? Just like the Pharisees, we can be hypocritical. We, hypocritical. we can do the good, do the good things with bad motives. And when you boil it down to why, why do we tend to do this? Why do we good th- do good things with these, these motives? What, what are my, my motives seeking after? It comes down to this. Myself. My, I am motivated by being self-seeking. We all, in a way, are, are self-centered mini-narcissists where I just can only think about me. It's like I got these blinders on that the things that I do are just so people will view me in this, this way. And, and this is what sin does. It sort of curves us in on ourselves. It puts the blinders up. Uh, Augustine talks about this. He, he, say, he coined this term, incurvitus insay, that sin sort of warps us and, and sort of circles us in on ourselves so I can only see myself. I'm not doing it to honor God. I'm not doing it to bless other people. My motives are all about me. I want to use God and his gifts for my own advantage, for my own fame, for my own notoriety. Now, eventually, I think our culture, as the more that we kind of move into this um, hyper-individualism, eventually it's going to like pull the rug out from underneath of us. Eventually, like when you have a whole society that is individually focused about themselves, what's eventually going to happen? It's going to collapse, right? Nobody, you know, if that's the way that we're moving towards, it's not going to go well for us. And religion has this way of of trying to manually straighten out our heart. Like if we have this inward curve on ourselves, religion has a way of saying, okay, do these things and you'll start to get unwarped. Like, for example, tradition and dogma. Like, if you follow this protocol, if you do this action, eventually your heart will catch up. Or another motive that's a, listen, fear. Religion uses fear. It says, you gotta, you gotta straighten up or God's gonna get you. Right? He's gonna sneak up on you. You're gonna be caught off guard. Right, and so religion uses these sort of motivations to sort of get our hearts to straighten out. Now, secularism takes a different approach. If it cares at all, like if it has any interest in sort of unwarping the heart or, or making it so we're not all narcissists and self-focused people, secularism will say, listen, guys, we got to be a little bit logical here. Like, we just got to be, we got to make a little bit better decisions. We've got to pave a better way for ourselves. But all of these things will fail eventually. They might work for a little bit, but eventually they're going to let you down. They don't have what it takes to sustain you. I saw a tweet this week from Tim Keller, um, pastor, former pastor in New York City. He says, fear, logic, and tradition 
are not going to make you live a good life when no one is looking. Those things, fear, logic, tradition, they can't do it. They can't get you, they can't motivate you to live the kind of life that the apostle Paul is saying, this is what it should look like. And the reason for this is they cannot reach into the heart. See, only the gospel can straighten out our sin-warped hearts. Only the gospel can do this. And when the gospel does this and reaches into our hearts, God, God actually places a new heart in us, right? That's, that's what Paul's talking about, this new, your new creation. You put on the new self. You have a, a new heart with new desires that is now driven, that is motivated by unique gospel motivations that, that sort of push you in the direction of abiding by the house rules that God lays out, to obeying God. Now, it's not out of duty and obligation, but out of sincerity, out of, out of earnest delight. You might even go as far, I would say, to go as far as to say it's a joyful act of obedience. Like, I willingly give myself to this kind of life. And here, in these five verses, the, the final five, five verses that we were looking at today, I, I want to show you two gospel motivations. There's probably like three or four of them that I could probably unpack, but, but two of them specifically that, that sort of drive us, that motivate us to abide by God's house rules. So let's, let's take a look at these. I had long, long, you know, long on-ramp again this week, but here we go. Paul, just to set this in context, Paul begins this passage that we had read this morning by laying out the bulk of house rules, and then he goes into verse 31. He says this, let all bitterness and wrath, and again, tacking up more rules, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, go back to verse 30. Here's what he says. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here's the first motive for, for gospel obedience that the Apostle Paul lays out. He says, listen, don't sin, don't break the house rules that God's provided the church because it saddens God. That God is, is grieved when we break his rules, right? Don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this is a unique claim of Christianity. No other worldview, no other religion makes this claim that, that sin, they, they'll, those other religions, other worldviews will say, sin is wrong, so don't do it, right? They'll just make a purely moral um, command of it, you know, like go back to the morality of it. It's, it's right or wrong, don't do it if it's wrong. But Christianity says, okay, not only is there right and wrong at play here, but, but to go into sin grieves God. Like his heart is saddened, that, that it breaks God's heart because sin breaks what is precious to God. And two things specifically. First of all, sin breaks us. Sin makes us less humane. In the Garden of Eden, God created all humanity in the Imago Dei, the image of God. That's, that's meant to reflect the glory of God, it's supposed to be these glorious creatures. And by the time we get to Genesis 3, we see that sin sort of infiltrates the world and starts causing fractures in the Imago Dei, right? The, the reflection that was intended doesn't happen the way God wanted it to happen. 
right? So, so in this way, sin breaks us. The imago Dei is distorted. We live a less humane kind of life. Now, the, now the, uh, the lie of sin is that if you sin, if you do things the way that you want to do them and live in to sin, sin has the capacity to make you happy. Sin has the ability to deliver on what you most long for in life. But here's the lie about it. It has no ability to do that. Now, it might do it momentarily. Like Paul talks about sin that feels good for a moment, and then that's gone. It's fleeting like a vapor. It's gone. It cannot deliver on its promises. And what happens when promises are broken is that we also get devastated by that. And so when God looks and he sees his children ransacked, beloved children at that, verse, five, verse 1 of chapter 5 says, beloved children, when God sees his beloved children ransacked like that by sin, it saddens him. Because he has this design, he has this desire for us to flourish, to live the full life, the abundant life, which is why he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit, that he began this act of salvation. He saved us, and he's given us the Holy Spirit, which is a seal, it's a guarantee of our, our inheritance to, to come, and the Spirit seals us and is working within us to lead us down the pathway of flourishing. Yet when we sin, we say, no, thank you, Spirit of God. I will do things my own way. Thank you. And so God, when he sees us turning his back on that human flourishing, when he sees us turning our back on, on living into the glory that we were meant to embody as his creation, it saddens him. Right? Sin is destructive. Now, the other way that we see the destruction of sin, the breaking of sin, is that sin breaks our relationships. It doesn't just break us in the sense of Imago Dei, but it, it fractures our relationships. The Bible talks about sin in many different ways. And one of the ones that sort of repeats over and over through Scripture is thinking of sin as rebellion. It's the act of pushing away, of saying, no, thank you, I'll do things my own way. I hear what you're saying, God, but I don't think that's the best way, and so I'm going to set out my own way. And what we do is we push back, and in rejecting God's rules, what we're doing is rejecting God. See, this is why sin grieves God. We were created to have relationship with him, that God delights in having relationship with us, and sin fractures that. We sang about this morning, this chasm that is created by sin. It separates us from God. It severs our relationships. It places this distance between us. Now, we, we typically don't tend to think of, of sin in such relational terms. We, we, we tend to think of it more as like black and white, right and wrong. But what the gospel does is shows us that this is, is relational. Like, sin is relationally devastating because the intent of every single house rule, of every command that God gives, whether it go all the way back to the Ten Commandments or, or in the, the, um, the imperatives that God gives in the New Testament of how to live uh, out of our gospel identity, every single house rule is designed to uphold, to deepen relationship with God and with others, right? With God and the, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Every single rule has a relational intent to it. And so to sin is not just to violate the rules, but it's to violate God and other people.
when you sin against your brother, when you sin against your sister, it cuts. And sometimes it cuts deep, right? It wounds us. And what happens is God's wired us in a way where you've heard of the flight or fight reactions that we have. Well, that kind of applies to the spiritual relational aspects that we have here in the church is that we get wounded, we get hurt, we're sinned against, and we either want to fight, right? We lash out with anger, that anger, the, the wrath, the malice sort of surfaces. We're, we're going to put somebody on blast and, and raise a stink. We're going to talk about people behind their back and slander against them. We take this eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth mentality, and we're just going to go boom, right? That's a fight. Or there's the flight, right? You, you get sinned against and you're like, deuces, I'm out. If this is going to happen here, then I, I don't know if I can handle this. But here's the reality. There is not a single relationship in your life where there is not the potential for you to get hurt. Why? Because you're in relationship with other sinners. And actually, flip that, you're probably gonna hurt other people too. It's just gonna happen. You're going to be sinned against and you will sin against others. And when that happens, the flight mechanism will, will make you to push away. Um, you'll get passive aggressive. Maybe you'll still stay um, in close proximity with that person, physically speaking. But relationally, you just keep pushing away, pushing away, pushing away. You're creating this distance, right? Not letting them actually know the real you. Not, not actually bringing the charge against them of how you've been hurt. And so resentment and bitterness sort of settle in and it just gets you into this very angsty spot in your heart where it's like eventually you just sort of wall yourself off, right? Flight is just, man, I've got to put up the walls, sort of cut off relationships, or at least, or, or another version of this is to have relationships that only go, you know, an inch deep, right? Because if, if they're just an inch deep, it doesn't, their opinion of me or what they do or how they might hurt me doesn't really carry a lot of weight. But God has created us to be relational creatures, people who are defined by relationship. It's where we find our purpose, our significance. It's where we, are, are, we experience the love of God. And so when, when the church, when brothers and sisters are doing this fight or flight stuff, when, when we're lashing out in anger or bitterness is taking root, God is devastated to see his children interacting with each other in this kind of a way. Right, God? It's like my kids. Dude, you guys have no idea how crazy my house can be sometimes. And we got four boys. Three of them are pretty close. The older three are pretty close. And it's like, it can be a constant fight. It's like a constant wrestling match, constant screaming match, constant stuff going on. Probably says a little bit about my parenting. I'm working on it. But here, it's like you feel it. Like when I'm, I'm looking at them, like why are you guys? I had a conversation with my kids last night. It's like the whole, everybody out in the world is going to want to tear you down. Everybody else is going to have something really critical to say about you. It grieves me to see you interacting with each other in this way. We ought to have each other's backs. And so in the same way, God looks at his children interacting like this, and it grieves him over the sin. So it's, it's a relational thing. See, that's, that's one of the motives here of why, because God is actually saddened. Now, you might hear this and say, well, this sm smells like emotional manipulation. For God to say he's grieved by it? Come on, God, if God is really this big, omnipotent, you know, mighty God, he doesn't, he doesn't need my obedience, Right? 
he, he's, he could get, you know, I could, I could just totally cut ties with God and walk away, and he'd be probably pretty fine. Well, that, that's true in a sense, where God, God doesn't need us. Like God doesn't depend on our relationship. Even, even if we cut ties and run far, far away from God, that doesn't change anything. God is completely satisfied in and of himself within the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's totally content there. But the crazy part of this, the mystery of this is that God wraps up his heart with us. That, that he allows himself to feel like, like what we do has some sort of impact on him. Now, why is this? It's, it's because God loves us. You grieve over what you love, right? You lose a loved one, you grieve over it. You lose something, maybe it's a possession, you lose that thing. The grief expresses the love that preceded it. And so God, it's because he loves us that he grieves. And if we love God, we will want to please him. Think, think of that within the context of marriage. You love your spouse, you'll want to do right by them. And Romans 8, verse 8 says, listen, we, we cannot please God in the flesh. It's impossible for us to continue in our life in the, in the way of the Gentiles, which Paul talks about in, verse, or in chapter 4. He's like, we cannot continue in the life of the flesh and please God. What we have to do, there has to be a renovation of the soul that takes place. A desire to love God. And, and when God places that new heart in us, the Holy Spirit seals us and is at work in us. And I think that's the first gospel motivation, that we want to please God. Not just to do the right thing, but we want to please God. We see this in relational terms. And to even have that desire, this longing, this want in our hearts to want to please God shows that the gospel is at work in us. Because in that moment, it's unwarping our hearts. It's taking the focus off of myself and putting it on God. I'm not out to please myself. I'm out to please God. I'm out to honor God. I'm not out to make my name great, but to make God's name great. And when you think about sin in these relational terms, the fact that when you break the rules, when you, when you go against God's design for life, it grieves him. That's going to change the way that you view sin. It's no longer these arbitrary rules. It's about relationship with God and with other people. Now, the second motivation for abiding by these house rules that Paul lays out, it's highlighted twice, which tells us that it's important. In verses 32, um, going into chapter 5, verses 2, let me just read it real quick. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What an invitation. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The Christian motivation, the gospel motivation for obedience is because Jesus did this first, I want to reciprocate. In verse 32, Paul gives three things. He says, be kind, be tenderhearted, forgive one another. In, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, he says, imitate God, which, by the way, seems like a pretty big deal to imitate God. Um, he says, walk in love. He, he commands us to do these things, but these things are impossible to do upon our own strength. I mean, like, think about it. You want me to imitate God? How in the world do I imitate God? How can I do that? It seems impossible. 
right? Or even break it down a little bit, to be tenderhearted toward people, right? Be tenderhearted to people that I feel really impatient toward. How in the how do I do that? Right? Be kind to the people that I've got bitterness stored up for in my heart. How, what? To, to forgive people? I think this might be the hardest one. To forgive others? Right? How am I supposed to do it? It seems like an impossible standard. And then just in the moment where we think that we're incapable of doing it, where there's no way that's within our wheelhouse to accomplish, Paul directs our eyes back to Jesus. He says, do these things. But look, at says, as God in Christ forgave you, forgive others as God in Christ forgave you. He does it again in verse, in verse two. Walk in love, right? Imitate God and walk in love because you have been so thoroughly loved by Jesus in the gospel. Though we were at once enemies of God, we were rebelling against God, we were hostile to God, we didn't want anything to do with God, yet God set his love upon us. He didn't withhold a single thing that he gave up, even his son, his beloved son so that we could become his beloved children. And so by Jesus getting pushed out on the cross, see, this is the sacrifice. This is, this is what, uh, what Paul goes on to talk about, this, this fragrant offering, the sacrifice to God, that Jesus on the cross to atone for all of our sins, all of our foibles, all the ways that we've been rebels breaking the law, all, even the ways that we've done the right thing for the wrong reason, Jesus goes to the cross and every sin is placed upon him. And in that moment, God condemned sin in Christ. It was done, nailed to the cross, paid in full. See, this is what Jesus did for us. He gave himself up to God for us as a fragrant offering to God. See, this gets to the gospel, the real gospel motivation. I mean, the motivation beneath the motivation is, is that Apostle Paul points us back to Jesus. All of our conduct, we do this because this thing first happened. We love because in Christ, God first loved us. We forgive because in Christ, God forgave us. That is why. So we are, we are not doing these things in order to gain something from God. See, I'm not forgiving people so that then God will eventually forgive me. I've already been forgiven from God or by God, so therefore that frees me to forgive other people. See, I'm not striving for God's love. I already have it in Christ, which enables me to walk in love toward other people. Man, are you guys sleeping or what? Come on. Paul is pointing us back to Jesus, back to the gospel. He says, it's already been done for you. You're already loved, already forgiven. And before we do a single thing, we got it. Jesus gives himself. And so when you see Jesus give in such an, ex uh, an exceptional way, when you see what he has done on the cross to forgive our sins, to reconcile us to God, because that's really what the cross is doing. The, the dividing wall of hostility that was up between Jews and Gentiles, the dividing wall of hostility that was up between us and God, it's taken down to the ground. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And now we are reconciled to God, relationally restored to God. And out of that reconciliation, it just flows out of us. We, we, we want to honor God. We want to worship God. And the way that we do that is by our obedience. We want to show others what God is like through the way that we live. And so here in the gospel, we get this freedom, real freedom, freedom from being self-seeking because what we see is that Jesus seeks my ultimate good for me. 
When I, when I think I know what's best for me, Jesus says, no, no, hold up. Let, let me show you what you need. And when we see the gospel, it takes my eyes off of myself and puts my gaze upon Jesus. John Stott says, for every, every one sin that you do, take 10 looks at the cross. Right? Every time you look at your sin one time, look at the cross 10 times because there God says a better word about you. And while I was rebelling against God, while I was an enemy of God, God was working all of this out for me. And so now, because he's for my good, because I can see he has my best interest in mind, I can, I can give myself. I can reciprocate what God has given me. And only when you see that, only when you see the gospel, is there this desire now put in you, a joyful desire to abide by the house rule. This is because Jesus took drastic action first on my behalf that I, I joyfully reciprocate, that I want to imitate him, right? That, that, that's what, to, to be imitators of God is like, I see the example that Jesus lived. I'm attracted to that. There's something that draws me into that, and I want to imitate Christ. And as we do that, Paul talks about, this is what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. See, Jesus gave his life up as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice, Paul calls us in Romans 12, to give yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship, as a living sacrifice, which is an imitation, in imitating God, in showing and demonstrating and reciprocating the love of God. This is the gospel motivation. This is what, what pushes us to abide by the house rules in the power of the Holy Spirit, because again, God seals us with the Spirit, puts the power of the Spirit in us that drives us into this kind of a life. And it is a, a life that is marked by love. That, that's, that's the defining characteristic. Now you could sum it all up as to walk in love. Right? To love God. What are the two great commandments? To love God and to love neighbor. And when you live a life like this, I think this is, this is like a, a natural third motivation here. That when you see that sin is relational, that, that when, you, when you see the gospel and you see that we're, we're acting in response to what Jesus has already done, this third motivation naturally develops is that, that when you start living like this, when you start imitating Christ and, and being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, other people will come alive because of that. See, it, this, this is a way that, that you're a living sacrifice. Do you see that? So this, this whole sacrifice system works that one dies in order many live. And this is the way that you offer yourself as a, a living sacrifice. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to die to my sinful desires. I'm going to die to my bad motives. And I'm going to live in Christ so that others may come alive, that others can experience the tenderness that, you know, as, as they experience my tenderness, it points them to the true tenderness that's found in Jesus. As people experience my kindness, it points them to the greater kindness that's in God that leads us to repentance. As they experience my forgiveness... It points them to the true forgiveness that's found in Jesus. See, another motive, like that's another motive. Other people get in on it. Other people find themselves as part of the household of God as we embody this kind of gospel life. So wherever you go, in your neighborhood, your school, your work, your gym, God is sending you there to show other people what God is like, to give them a little taste of the gospel so their ear might be inclined, 
And so they might, by God's grace, receive his love, receive his forgiveness. And little by little, the church grows and matures and is built up until the day Jesus returns for his glorious bride. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, the way that that you look after us, the way that you have, have given us not only the rules, but a, a truer and better motive to live into them. God, by, by our, our, our understanding of the gospel, would you put within us these new desires, these mo- new motives to live this certain kind of life, not for the gain of self, but for the praise of your glorious grace. And God, as the church lives into this, as we live out of our gospel identity and embody these gospel rhythms and gospel behaviors, would more and more people come to know the real Jesus who has a tender heart towards sinners, a tender heart towards rebels, who doesn't want to just cut them off and say, have it your way, but longs to bring them in and to make them part of a family, God. Would you do this work, the work that only you can do? And this morning as we come to the Lord's table, we ask that your spirit would move in a way that convicts us of sin. Even even as we uh, prepare to take the elements, would your spirit be convicting of us of sin of ways that we're either rebelling or that our motives are twisted and we're trying to do the right thing for the wrong reasons? Would you bring conviction? And in that conviction, would it bring us to repentance that we would lay it before the feet of Jesus so that we could see that it was his body that was broken, his blood that was shed to amend, to atone, to Uh, reconcile us to God, that we would live fully alive to him, that we would honor God. See, that's the crazy part of this passage. You go from grieving God to honoring God, from from grief to joy. And so, God, would you help us to be a people that you delight in for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.